Did you notice how the kids very quickly knew what married couples ought to be doing? Did you notice all the hands that went up? Okay. And the main thing they noticed is that, the, that you guys need to stick together. So those of you that, that are married and you're together right now, you know, think about the ways that you can keep that togetherness. It's very easy to become just coworkers, rearing the kids, doing your job, trying to keep the house from falling down around you instead of continuing to nurture the relationship. And husbands, your job is to lead in that. Uh, you, set, you set the statern, uh, pattern, you set the, the, um, the whole character of the home, the way that it feels, and wives then can follow that kind of, of leadership. All right, so we are in the second, uh, s- second message of the Biblical Manhood and Womanhood series. This reminds me a lot of our biblical worldview series that we did over the course of, well, it was supposed to be a year, but COVID made it a year and a half, um, and, and how in some ways frustrating it was in that we're hitting, flying over so much material. But I think the purpose of this is not to get lost in the weeds, but to see the big picture, to see what's actually happening as you work through the weeds of your life to get a read on where you are in terms of the big picture and the things that are happening. And of course, we're patterning this really on creation, fall, redemption. So last week, we talked about God's good design, that's creation. This week, marred by the fall, the damage done. We often think of the fall um, into sin, the damage is done to us, the damage is done to the universe, the fact that, we're, that death has passed upon all men. Um, but I think a lot of times we don't think about the damage that it did to the relationship between men and women and how all the problems that we see today of every sort that are related to that relationship really hark back to what happened in the fall. And we're going to see that illustrated tonight. Next week, we'll be looking at really beginning redemption, the example of Christ and the apostles, and really just a very helpful uh, example of Christ who was not married um, to a wife. Um, he's married to the church, metaphorically, um, but how Christ interacted uh, with members of the opposite sex, with women, um, and, and He did so in a way that was, was not according to the culture of the times. And the same with the apostles. Some of the apostles were married, some of them were not. Then yet we see their example. And then finally, we'll wrap up with apostolic directions to the churches and how we apply um, the role of men and women and their relationship in the church setting. But we want to go all the way back to the beginning, just as we did for looking at God's created design. We want to really ask the question, what went wrong and, and, and how did that happen and um, what was the effect of it? So we're going to spend time in terms of Scripture uh, in Genesis 3, which gives us an account of mankind's fall into sin. We read in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we're going to see the serpent uh, in this temptation scene. And somebody asked, well, is it Satan or is it the serpent? And the answer is Yes in that Satan is using the serpent. And it's interesting when you look through Scripture that that serpent is one of the descriptions of 
Satan, and in particular, the, the fiery serpent or a, a, um, a serpent that would be a dragon, he's called the great red dragon. So, this reptilian, um, brutal, um, murderous kind of beast is what we're introduced to, and uh, Satan filling this serpent also has the character of such a serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, in other words, you get to decide what's good and evil instead of God, she took of the fruit, its fruit, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that's hostility, you're at war between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. First, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at the nature of the serpent's temptation, because he's been using this line of attack ever since then. In fact, the more I've thought about this, the more I'm convinced that there's almost nothing new under the sun that he loves this tactic. And particularly when we talk about relationship of men and women 
and that false ideas that are popular today, they, they are root, well rooted in the nature of the serpent's temptation. First, you see a distortion of God's command. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, so common for those that want to debunk the Word of God to make it say things that it doesn't say, to make it seem more harsh than it actually is, um, to, to misrepresent what's there so that they can defy it. And then you see a denial of God's judgment. You will not surely die. So there's not going to be a price tag if you do the wrong thing. And then that leads then to a dishonor of God's character, because the question is, if eating the tree doesn't bring death, then why did, God, why did God sternly warn us not to do this? Well, it must be because God's actually a bad person, dishonor of God's character. For God knows, this is why He's holding you back, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, the, the interesting thing about the way Satan puts this, the way the serpent puts this, is some of it's true. Because you read that their eyes were opened. And, and in a tangential way, in a, in a small way, they did become like God in, in that they were now aware of what evil is like. But what Satan's trying to sell to them, that they would actually be better off and more powerful, they'd be like God, they would elevate themselves, was just a lie. And so, I wanted to bring out, besides the distortion, denial, and dishonor, there's also deception. Your eyes will be open, you will be like God. He puts those two together. And, you know, when you mix a lie with the truth you end up with a lie. You can have water that's perfectly good to drink, you put poison in it, it's now poisoned water. Okay? And he poisoned what he told them. And, and Eve confesses, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And Paul actually refers to this in the New Testament about Eve being deceived by the serpent. Of course, Adam is standing there. Did you notice that? Adam's, Adam was with her? It's like, you know, the, the cat had his tongue or something. I mean, he, he's not saying anything. He's not doing anything to intervene. He's not stepping in for her protection. He just goes along. And then desire. We know that we sin when desire kicks in for something God has forbidden. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, um, you have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, that's all pulled together. Then she actually ate disobedience. She took up its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the way that temptation works, and it continues to work. And, and you, can, you can put any kind of, of false living, any kind of harmful living in place, and it's going to be related to departing from God's Word. We had birds this morning. We have music this evening. Um, so, distortion of, of God's command, you know, going back to the Word. We're not paying attention to the Word. We're misrepresenting the Word. We're denying God's Word. 
we're impugning God's character. People do it in a backhanded way. They say, well, God certainly wants me to be happy, and I can't be happy unless I disobey what he said. It's the same, it's the same kind of argument where you're misrepresenting God, you're dishonoring God, and that somehow he's holding you off from happiness by his command. But what were the judicial consequences of human sin? Well, with the serpent, you have ongoing hostility with the human race and the eventual destruction by the woman's offspring. You know, as crafty as Satan is, as much damage as he's done as the tempter, his days are numbered. Judgment is going to fall completely on him. He does not have free reign, even now. And and there's this ongoing, ongoing hostility with the human race, in particular the human race that has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, the new Adam. For woman, there is pain in childbirth. And this is so significant because this was, this was part of the blessing of God, that they would multiply, that they would be fruitful, they would multiply, they would fill the earth to subdue it. But now the, the doorway to that is very difficult. The doorway to that is fraught with pain and, and sometimes uh, even deadly kind of pain. And we're shielded from that somewhat in our times compared to other places in the earth and other times, but, but infant mortality and, and uh, women dying in labor was, was is quite a common thing. I remember some years ago, we were down in Charleston at one of the uh, historic graveyards there. It goes way back into like 1600s, 1700s, and, and how many graves there were of, of multiple children, and then the wife there in the graveyard in those days. So, pain and childbirth. And then for the man, painful difficulty in cultivating the earth. He was supposed to exercise dominion over the earth. He was supposed to cultivate it. He was supposed to make it fruitful and manage it. And now it's exceedingly difficult. It brings forth thistles. He produces sweat. It's just, uh, it's just hard. Work was a blessing, but now work has been undermined by the curse. And then I did leave something out here that shouldn't be left out because it's the dominant thing that happened. In the day you eat of this, you shall die. The sentence of death, okay, comes. You return to, to the dust, so you ought to add that in there. But I wanted to, to focus this evening on the disruption of the union between man and woman. And we see that in the second part of verse 16. We're told that, that the woman would have a desire for mastery, a desire contrary to her husband. Now, the language is kind of cryptic, but it seems to indicate that, that the woman, that the idea of following the husband's lead now that they're both sinners is far more difficult. And and so there's a natural, whenever we see a leader not doing the right thing, or we feel like there's not doing the right thing, and our own vision is clouded by sin, then it makes us want to take charge. And so there's this, this natural restiveness that would happen uh, for women and that they have to fight the desire for mastery of her husband. And, but the text says, but he shall, 
he shall rule over you. And, and, the, and the inference seems to be, uh, the implication seems to be that, it, that it's a ruling, a lording over, a domineering over one's wife. Or the, the other sin that we see is a failing to protect her. And they're really, they're two sides of the same coin. Either way, the husband, instead of caring for his wife, he, he's either lording it over her in an abusive sort of way, or, or he's not protecting her in the way God designed for him to, to do. Leadership, biblically, we're going to see this in uh, subsequent weeks, that godly leadership is not just about being in charge. It's, it's about protecting those in your care and, and being a kind of leader that looks out for, you're leading for the good of those that you lead. And we see even, even in the temptation itself, you know, Adam, Adam doesn't do what a husband ought to do. Adam was there, and part of the indictment that God delivers is, is because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten. And it's not saying that no men should ever listen to the voice of their wife. It's that here you have, here you have his wife, Eve, who is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, who's, who's been tricked and, and is about to be harmed, and he doesn't step in. He just goes along instead of protecting her with the loving care that husbands ought to have. So you have this disruption of the union between men and women, and then you have both of them uh, in verse 12 really blame-shifting. You know, the wife you gave me, uh, you know, the devil made me do it. Um, you have this tendency not, not to own the problem that you're bringing to the relationship. And I've, I've told you multiple times before, and I'll, I'll say it again, it's just I can think so far of two instances in 30 years of pastoring, where a couple comes in to get help with their marriage, where one of them says, I know that the problem's with me. All the rest of them, it's always, it's always the other person's fault. You know, if he would love me more, if he would listen to me more, if she would submit to me more, uh, it's, it's always the other person's fault. Instead of saying, what can I do? to actually make my marriage better. And it's like they're each waiting for the other to make the first move. And, and until we can actually be living in our marriages in a way where we're living before God, where we make the first move, we're willing to do that, our, our marriages aren't going to improve. Okay? And so this blame shifting has become part. And, and we see it uh, more broadly than just within the marriage. We see that with men and women. You know how men are. You know how women are. You, you see all that kind of talk that tends to belittle um, the opposite sex. So what is the historical impact of this human sin? You have this, this poison seed where rather than men and women working together in, to fulfill God's purposes in the earth, uh, you see them now at odds with each other, neither of them doing their part of the role well, both of them behaving in a harmful way. Well, the historical impact of human sin on the relationship between men and women, it starts almost right away. Okay? And so you start reading the early history of the human race, even before the flood, and you start running into things like polygamy. So you have Lamech, uh, who was the, the first one um, 
known for having two wives. He, he gives some kind of song about the violence that he did. The, land, the, the, the world was full of violence at the time. That's one of the main things God was judging with the flood. Um, so you have this common violation of God's uh, original design, uh, the, the polygamy, and I didn't even finish the sentence. You know, today's been my day for making mistakes. <laughs> even among the patriarchs. So you have to supply the patriarchs. Um, and polygamy, polygamy, we're going to see, never works out well. It all, always introduces problems that wouldn't be there if it were one man, woman, woman for life. We see the use of concubines. That's essentially what Hagar was. She was a slave to Sarah, and she was used as a concubine for Abraham. It was man's way of trying to solve his problems rather than, rather than faith in the promise of God that offspring would come as God had promised. We see rape. You see the rape of Dinah and vengeance. Simeon and Levi uh, engage in genocide. They wipe out the entire region of Shechem. Um, and that's not you know, that's going to continue. These are like first instances, and all this kind of stuff continues. And then there's sexual immorality of, of every sort. In Leviticus 18 and other passages, you have reference to adultery, to fornication, um, you know, heterosexual and homosexual. This is, homosexuality is not a new thing. It's an old thing. Incest, bestiality, and prostitution, both commercial prostitution as well as cultic prostitution that was tied to the worship of, in the fertility cults. All, all this variety starts very early on. And we see it in particular in the land of Canaan, and it's for that reason that God says that, he, uh, that, that the land is, is vomiting out its inhabitants. And God brought judgment on the Canaanites through the Israelites coming in and pushing them out, and when the Israelites started practicing some of the same sins, God took them into captivity. Because, you know, living this way is the way idol worshipers live. It's the way those that have deified their own appetites li live versus those that are actually worshiping the true God. And it's this disruption of our relationship with God leads to all these deviations, these perversions of the good gift of sex within marriage. And then it, acts, it leads to infanticide. That is the, the killing, the murder of children, destroying the offspring resulting from sexual immorality. It was a horrific ancient practice in a number of, of different groups, burning infants alive as sacrificial offerings to Molech or to Chemosh. There are actually several versions of this where they take live infants and they slaughter them. And they do so to placate the gods of fertility. They do so to get rid of um, the results of sexual immorality. In, in ancient Rome, they would abandon infants um, and leave them to the dogs in the streets and to the elements. Christians were known for rescuing these children, these infants from the streets before the dogs could get to them and adopting them and rearing them. And so God, God used believers actually throughout history to be 
um, those that promoted life and that showed love to children. They, they had the Savior's attitude toward children that says, you know, allow the little children to come to me of such as the kingdom of heaven. The ancient world also practiced inducing miscarriages to end unwanted pregnancies and and to this day, they tried different surgical and medical uh, procedures, uh, different methods over time, but all with the same result, all with the same underlying spirit of devaluing children and of considering them less than worthy of living, of trying to separate between being human and being a person. Like, it's okay to kill humans that aren't really persons. This is the way genocide happens. This is the way infanticide happens. And, but it was rooted in this sexual morality that removes um, the, our sexuality from the sacred protection of a marriage where children are well cared for. Also, a common evil that shows up very early is the evil of divorce. The first reference we have to it is in Deuteronomy 24. Uh, Old Testament law, along with New Testament commands, sought to reduce the harm created by divorce by protecting the vulnerable and the innocent. What was happening in Deuteronomy 24 is that divorce was so easy, um, you know, you could you know, a, a wife would upset her husband for some way. It could be something very simple, like he didn't like the way she cooks, and he kicks her out of the house. And now she, she doesn't have protection of a husband. Uh, she doesn't necessarily have a means of, of income. She's without legal protection. And essentially what Moses did is said, look, you, you've, divorce is serious. You've got to have a legal document that frees this woman so that she can be married that frees this woman so that she can have the care that she's need, that's needed. In Malachi 2, the last book of the Old Testament, um, talking about divorce, refers to divorce as violence against a spouse where protection should be. It uses this phrase, covering one's garment with violence. Just like you would on a cold day, gather a garment around you for protection and warmth, that's the way a marriage should be. That's the way a husband's care for his wife should be. And so when, when a wife is driven from her husband and divorced from her husband, it's doing violence to her. And so God says there in Malachi 2 that, you know, these husbands are, are uh, praying before God. He says, I don't, I'm not even listening to your prayers because earlier your wife has been here crying over the altar because you ditched her for some younger woman or some foreign woman rather than sticking with the wife that you married. You've done uh, harm to her. And then when you get to Matthew 19, with the exception clause, you know, God, Christ says that uh, to divorce and marry another is adultery, except in the case of fornication, except in the case where there's ongoing sexual infidelity, uh, unrepentant sexual immorality that is destroying the marriage, and it gives a recourse for the innocent spouse. I, I would just caution that we not look at the exception clause as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, if I can just catch my spouse doing something um, that's immoral, then I can be free from an unhappy marriage. Because the, the picture that you see is, 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 is a permitting of the divorce, not 
not saying you have to divorce. And, and the idea is many, many marriages can be and are restored, even from a problem of infidelity. There are cases, and I've known of some of them anecdotally, where you've got ongoing, like serial kind of sexual infidelity, um, just horror stories that I'm not going to go into now, where, where the innocent party does need some kind of recourse. Uh, there's a vulnerability. Um, there's protection. And the, and the way Scripture deals with divorce, divorce is already commonly practiced the first time it's mentioned, Okay. Christ says it's because of the hardness of heart. It's a hardness of heart toward God's design for marriage. It's a hardness of heart toward one's spouse. But, but then what, what the Scripture does is it's frank about the, the difficulties that can arise, and it looks out for the vulnerable and for the innocent and provides for a way for them to have some kind of redemption from it. Well, all these practices reflect the damaged relationship between sinful men and women, adding further damage. And it's not, it's not just sinful men, and it's not just sinful women. It's both are participating in this in one way or another, and, and whenever we sin, we're going to do damage. They reveal the failure of men to exercise godly leadership with gentle care. And this is one of the things that we're going to see. God's design for biblical manhood is it's not just that you're the man in charge, the king of the castle. It's you're the person in charge of making sure everybody's cared for well in your family, starting with your wife. Your, your job is for wherever there is strength in the Scripture, it's to be used uh, for protection, not, not to abuse those that you're supposed to protect. Then you have the dishonoring of men and women into tools for self-centered abuse of God's good gift of marriage and sex. So now people become just objects of desire. They just become tools. And whether you call them a concubine or, or a prostitute or whatever else, you're still using people that way, even if it's just casual dating. And then there's the destruction of healthy marriages and family life contrary to God's good design. I mean, the level of pain from, from the disruption of man's relationship with woman, the level of pain that we experience through the centuries and right, right into our own congregation is some of the worst kind of pain that people can go through. And you know, it's, let me just encourage you as brothers and sisters in Christ, when you know people that have gone through uh, the kind of pain that's reflected here that you want to, your heart wants to go out to them. You want to minister to them. You want to be a help to them and provide a safe place for them. Well, Moses and the prophets and Christ and the apostles confront these practices as contrary to God's clear directives, as dishonoring to God and to human beings, and as extensively harmful. The Scriptures warn of God's executing righteous wrath on those who practice such things and give historical examples of His doing so. For example, polygamy always creates multiple family problems, and sexual perversions, which are often paired with various forms of violence, bring devastating judgment, often by conquering armies and at times by nature itself, from hornets to fire from heaven itself, as in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, have a great week. <laughs> no, we're going to go to the only hope. <laughs> we're going to go to the only hope. 
You know, you know part of this, though, let's call it what it is. We, we so sugarcoat everything and glorify stuff that's, that's garbage and that's so harmful to people. Our culture loves taking what's evil and calling it good. Let's call it what it is, okay? And let's recognize how harmful it is. You can't say you're loving people and doing stuff that destroys them. And, and yet our culture has co-opted Christian language and, and then attached it to evil things. Well, the only hope, what's the only hope? We actually have it hinted at in verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve. Eve means, if you were saying it in Hebrew, it's kawa, it means life. Okay? Because she was the mother of all living. So why would Adam, why would Adam have called her the mother of all living? She didn't have any kids yet. And they've fallen. I believe he's calling her the mother of all living because, and we're going to see this when she has her first child because she thinks that he might even be the deliverer, because God had predicted that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And so Adam has been listening. And with all the, the curse that has come down on the human race, he has listened to the promise. And he calls his wife Eve. And then verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He provided covering for them, but it was a covering that required a sacrificial death. And so we see two things right here at the beginning in chapter 3 of Genesis. Faith in the coming offspring who would crush the serpent. And then blood atonement provided by God himself for the shame of our sin. There is a redeemer. His name is Jesus. He's going to shed his blood to cover over our sin and to remake us clean. He's going to crush the serpent's head. He is going to reverse the effects of the fall to where there is no more sin, there is no more death, and there is no more men and women mistreating one another. Christ and his apostles will exemplify what a redeemed relationship between men and women looks like. We're going to look at that next week. And the apostles will give instruction to the congregation of the redeemed, the church, regarding godly roles and how we should treat one another. So think about it this way. We do live in a fallen world full of broken people and broken things. But if you're redeemed by Jesus Christ, you have the power of the Spirit in you, you can start, you can be working on and growing in relationship with your husband, your wife, men and women. You can be growing in a way that's reflective of God's original design and reflective of what we one day will be when we're fully sanctified. We look forward to what God will do. That's all we're doing tonight. A lot of stuff, but may God use it. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, may it grant, may it give to us the clarity to see what's actually happening in our times and the boldness and the courage to stick by your word and not to be deceived by, by false teachers who mix part of what's true with what's false and then sell it to us. Lord, may we live in ways that show that we hold your word to be trustworthy. May we live in ways that show that your son has redeemed us from our sin and from harmful relationships with others. 
Lord, may our lives be full of showing kindness and goodness to those that we live life with, starting with our own family. For it's in Christ's name we pray.